who knows what an oxymoron is? Now, it's not someone who's strong enough to be an ox and dumb enough to be one. No, it's a figure of speech where contradictory words are combined. And we have many of them in our culture. Thunderous silence, sweet sorrow, sobering praise. And of course, one of the favorites of professional sports announcers is winning ugly. Now, my purpose in using this illustration today is to get us thinking about our language, the fact that there are parts of our English language that are contradictory. And the same is true of other languages in other cultures as well as the biblical languages. Now, I have to admit that oxymorons are incredibly rare in the Bible. In fact, I can't really think of one off the top of my head. I need to take that back. I, I can think of a couple. Living water and living stones are a couple of oxymorons from the Bible. Yet, there's another figure of speech that is based upon contradictory ideas that happens to be very prevalent in the Bible called paradoxes. And that's not a paradoxers either. It means acts or statements that are contradictory, seemingly false and opposed to common sense, but being profoundly true. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, toward the end of this particular letter, the Apostle Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That seems to contradict itself. In your greatest time of weakness is when you really have strength. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a profound example of biblical paradoxes. In verse 1, it says, therefore, and it's looking back, and it's referring to this ministry we have. And of course, Pastor James and Pastor Zach preached on this last week, this glorious ministry that we have because of the Spirit of God. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 8 and 9, it's more glorious than how glorious the Old Covenant was, the Old Testament. And that was a glorious covenant. But this new ministry we have is even more glorious than that. So because of that, we do not lose heart. It's like saying here that we have this amazing Royals Royce to drive right now around, and so let's not be bummed out about the journey. The paradox here is that ministry is hard, but the message we have is incredible. And Paul is saying that the call that has been received, this ministry that's been commissioned, far outweighs all the distressing experiences that one has to undergo to discharge it. And this seems illogical, doesn't it? How can something involve suffering and trials and yet be rewarding? Still thousands of years of human history have proven this truth. And 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us that because of that, we are to serve the Lord diligently. Now again, verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. God's mercy, we have this ministry. And you'll recall back in verse 6 of chapter 3 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there the apostle said that God is the one who makes us competent as ministers in this particular ministry. And Paul himself wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, what I 
I think is an incredible explanation of what he's describing there in 2, Timothy, or 2 Corinthians 3, 6, and here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 1, where he says, I thank Christ our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Since this ministry that we have is a gift, we hang in there during the disturbing times, the times that would cause most people to lose heart, the times that would cause most people to give up. It's a gift of mercy we've been given. So we hang in there. Verse 2 goes, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now the apostle here clearly denies that he ever stooped to use methods of communication that were unworthy of the gospel. No false material, no deception, no distortions, no watering down of the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says, God is our witnesses. And whatever he is being accused of here, along with his fellow missionaries, he says, we have faithfully discharged the ministry that God has given to us. Verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, the apostle here is obviously being criticized for a lack of a, a clear and a concise message. So he plays along a little bit with the chiding that's going on. And he says, well, even if our message is veiled, and, and even if it is covered up and hard to understand, even if that is true, it's because people are perishing. That's why they cannot understand it. And the Corinthians should have recognized this because in the first letter, the apostle Paul told them in first. Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the following. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given. This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities which, with the Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The reason that they cannot understand is because they're perishing. They're not part 
of God's faith community. And verse 4 says, it's because of the God of this age, Satan is responsible. Now, this in no way means that Satan is all-powerful or that Satan somehow has more power than God does in this age. Just that Satan is the arch enemy of God and is the force behind all forms of ungodliness and unbelief in the world. And those who follow Satan effectively make him their God. And he in turn blinds their minds. The bottom line here is Satan is trying to do anything he can to hinder the work of God in this age. Now have you ever tried sharing your faith with someone who was deeply, deeply entrenched in their sin. And it's often frustrating. You know, it's like you can't seem to get through to them no matter what you try. And even though choices this person is making happen to be absolutely destroying their life, they can't seem to come to grips with it. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded their minds. Verses 5 and 6. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now Paul happens to be defending himself and his fellow missionaries against some accusations that they somehow were promoting themselves, that they were in this to draw attention to themselves, and, and that they were more concerned with their own authority than with proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I did have a seminary professor who taught us that it's very difficult to communicate to people that you are great and that God is great all at the same time. No, Paul says, we presented Christ as Lord, meaning that Christ is the master, and we presented ourselves as servants, which here is the Greek word doulos, which means slaves, and we are servants, we are slaves for your sake. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, this analogy would be easily understood because there were masters and there were slaves all over the place. And many households had them. And the analogy would mean here that Jesus is the one who calls the shots. And we, as your missionaries, Paul and these other missionaries, are your servants. We're your slaves. And the God of creation, as verse 6 talks about from Genesis 3, 1 verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. This was also Paul's testimony. Do you remember on the road to Damascus, he was going to persecute the church in Damascus? You know, he was tracking down Christians and, and arresting them, and, and he had permission from, the, from uh, Jerusalem to do that, and he's chasing after Christians to Damascus, and all of a sudden in the middle of the day, he's blinded by this bright light. In Acts chapter 9, it's recorded there. This is Paul's testimony. He was blinded. And in the second creation, which by the way, folks, the second creation is our conversions to Christ. When we come to Christ, that's the second creation. God also brings light. God also in that sense says, let there be light where there was darkness in our lives. And here the apostle says, we share Jesus. We have no other message to share. In fact, what could we even say about ourselves? Only that our lives are the result of God's work. And this is why. We serve him so diligently. Yes, this ministry, this work of proclaiming Christ only is a journey of hardships and it's a journey of rewards. And this incredible gospel is stored in cheap clay pots. Look at verses 7 through 12. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. How's this for a number of paradoxes? The glorious gospel is being carried around by flawed human beings. The analogy would be akin to having some extremely valuable jewels in your family, to have literally family heirlooms that are priceless, to maybe even have some kind of uh, of really precious and valuable antique coin collection and then go through life carrying them around in a cardboard box. We would never do that. We would store those wow values and riches in a security box in a bank. Or we would have a fireproof safe in our home bolted to the concrete floor and the concrete wall of our basements. Uh, that's how we would treat those kinds of riches. And in the Roman world, wealthy people had metal containers for their valuables. Meanwhile, clay pots were the staples of the poor. And they were cheap. They were also hard to repair when they cracked, and thus they were readily and easily discarded. And by the way, uh, what ancient artifacts are the most commonly discovered in our world right now by archaeologists? Literally in almost every archaeological dig, they find chards and remains of clay pots. And they find them everywhere, and most often... They're of little value. Now, the apostle is not implying here that our human bodies are worthless or of no value. He's just making the contrast to the unattractiveness of our cracked clay pots, our bodies compared to the beauty and the value of the gospel. Now, verses 8 and 9 use a lot of military uh, illustrations here as paradoxes. We're hard-pressed but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, means we're bewildered as to what we should even do next, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, means that we're chased, we're taunted, we're troubled, but we're not left to the, to the mercies of our enemies. And it says that we are struck down. It's actually a wrestling term here. We're knocked to the ground, but it's not permanent. The, the match isn't over. The contest isn't done. We can still get back up and continue on. And doesn't serving the Lord sound exciting? Doesn't it sound rewarding? Yes, it isn't easy, which is why we need to continue to operate in a spirit of faith. Look at verse 13. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Paul is quoting here Psalm 116, verse 10, where the psalmist speaks of divine deliverance. And he says, I have the same faith in God as the psalmist did, and God has delivered me as well. So I have no choice in my life but to share God's message. And in verse 14, he goes on to say, my faith is strengthened by the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, and one day he will also do the same for each one of us. So to all of you resurrection buffs out there, is the resurrection, the one we get to experience, an end in itself? No, 
It's not. It's a gateway to immortality in the presence of God. That's what verse 14 says. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Then verse 15 says, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Rather movingly, the apostle reminds the Corinthians that he endures all of these afflictions with resilience, not for his own benefit, but for their benefit, so that others may come to faith in Jesus Christ and that God will be glorified as a result of all of this. Then verse 16 goes, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. See, the Apostle Paul is a realist. He recognizes that his toil and suffering have taken a toll on him physically. But Paul reminds us that in the kingdom of God, there is a splendid compensation matching the progressive weakening of our physical powers with the daily renewal of spiritual powers. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Has Paul just forgotten what he said there? You know, we are, we are, we're in verses 8 and 9 when he talked about that we are hard-pressed, that we're persecuted, that we get knocked down, that we're perplexed. And then he said in verse 16 that our outward bodies are wasting away. Then he has the nerve to say here in verse 17, well, these are just light and momentary afflictions. What? Some would say, well, Paul, walk a couple miles in my shoes. Endure the pain that I've had to endure in my life. Face my heartaches and my disappointments. Face my setbacks and losses that I've had. And then come back and see if you can tell me that those are simply light and momentary afflictions. Well, I have to tell you, that if the Apostle Paul were here today, and if he could live your life, you know what? I believe he would say the same thing. And how could he say that? Because in the perspective of eternity, our difficulties, whatever they may be, however hard they may be, diminish in significance. And verse 18 goes on, does it teach? So we fix our eyes upon ourselves making sure to enjoy every passing pleasure on this earth that it has to offer. And we also do everything that we can in life to preserve our youth. And we spend every available dollar we have on ourselves, desiring the temporal things of this world. Now, what does it say? It says, so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. You know, I read a book late this last winter and early this spring, uh, having been encouraged to do it, read this book by one of the intellectuals in our church. And I did it in preparation for our sermon series on racism, as well as the series on 2 Corinthians. The book, I think we have a slide of it, is Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher. And it's a book about survivors of communism in Russia and Eastern Europe, and primarily it talks about Czechoslovakia. Now, I've read lots in my lifetime about communism, 
And I've studied a lot about Romania because I actually went there and spent time ministering as a missionary in Romania. So, so I learned a lot about Romania, but I've studied about Russia and China and, and Cuba and Venezuela and some things like that. But I've really never read much about Czechoslovakia. And this book also happened to be aimed at America because the author of this book believes that soft totalitarianism is already here on our American soil. Now, wherever communism has taken root worldwide, there has always been propaganda. Propaganda by the government through the media. There's also been the changing of language and the redefinition of words. Along with that, there have always been attacks on the institutions of marriage, the family, and the church, which are viewed as totalitarianism's biggest enemies. Isn't that something? Marriage, family, and the church, the biggest enemies of totalitarianism. Now, soft totalitarianism is already present in our culture. It's in the media. It's in our institutions of higher learning. We find it in politics. It's in our school systems now, and even major corporations are beginning to manifest it. Yes, we have to live in a world of lies, but it is our church, but it's our choice whether the world of lies lives in us. Now, the author of this book and numerous survivors of communism in the Eastern Bloc do not believe that the present church in America will do well under the harsh treatment of totalitarianism if it fully reaches its apex in the United States of America. Number one, they say, they believe that many American Christian families are basically not used to saying no. Basically, they say we often live like everyone else around us, chasing after the same self-fulfillment, having all the same toys that everyone else has, never cutting back to support the Lord's work. We, in fact, if we cut back, we cut back so that we can have the toys uh, and pleasure before cutting back to support the Lord's mission. And if activities that we're involved in or our family or our children are involved in, if they conflict with church, which do we tend to skip? Do we skip the activities or do we skip church? No, we go to these activities. And these European believers believe that Christians in the West, as a result of this kind of lifestyle, will be ill-equipped to face up to totalitarianism. They say nobody says no in America. No one is paying a price right now for their faith. So how are they going to pay the price when things get worse? Second, they say, many young Christians have little capacity to resist because they have been taught that the good life is free from suffering. They have been taught what these Christian communist survivors call a Christianity without tears. Rod Dreher says he often asks young Western Christians to name three values that they are ready to die for right now. And he says if they cannot name these, then they're not very serious about their faith. The third thing they say is that wealth, status, and success are no real defense against suffering thus totalitarianism. In Christianity, he says, these tools often create admirers and not followers. 
Admirers love being associated with Jesus. But when trouble comes along, they will either turn away from the Lord or they will distance themselves from Him. Admirers want comfort and advantage, which is why they most often fold when trouble comes. Soren Kierkegaard writes, the admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. In words, phrases, and song, he prizes Christ, yet renounces nothing. Nor will he reconstruct his life around Christ and also will never let his life express what he supposedly desires. Now, the follower is different. The follower, of course, is the biblical word for learner. It's the biblical word for disciple, methetes. And the follower, he says, is different. They aspire to become with all their being what they admire. Now, no Christian has the power to avoid suffering entirely. It is the human condition. What we do control, as we've seen right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in these early church missionaries' lives, is how we will act in the face of suffering. Will we run away and betray our Lord? Or will we accept suffering as part and parcel of following our Lord Jesus Christ? The choices we will make then, when we are under the ultimate test, truly depend upon the choices that we make today. So there's the question. Are we an admirer of Jesus? Or are we a follower? Let's pray. God, our Father, as we think of our culture right now and all the craziness that's going on and the things that we see occurring, it's hard to believe that some of these things are occurring in this nation that was built uh, upon so many Christian truths. And yet, Lord, it's here. It's real. And perhaps, God, suffering is coming for the church. I know throughout the world the church is suffering. And so, in a sense, why wouldn't the church ever suffer here in America? But I pray, as we've learned here from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we would be like these early church missionaries, prepared to face whatever suffering we encounter because of the great mercy you have shown to us, because of your light that's come into our darkened lives. And Lord, if there are changes in our life right now that need to be made so that we can be prepared, we can be trained and ready for any of these hardships or trouble that come along. I pray that we would make them. These adjustments would be made in our lives, that we wouldn't just continue to be like everybody else around us so that we can't accept the challenges when they come our way. God, we don't want them. We don't desire to have these obstacles, but we recognize, God, that they're very real and they're, the potential is there to be worse in the future. And I pray, God, for your church in America to be ready, to be ready for what you have for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.